Welcome to Reading Between the Lines, the People's Friends story podcast in association with the Odd Fellows. Each episode, a few of us from the Friend team, along with some special guests, will delve into our archives to find a story to read, and then we'll all sit down for a wee chat about it. Make yourself a cup of tea, pull up a chair, and come join us. This episode, we'll be reading The McPeaver Wrangles, The Secrets of Freemasonry by A.P. MacDonald. This story was originally published in The People's Friend in October 1906. This story will be read for you by Friend Production Editor Judy Struth. If I should be late, Jean... Thus provisionally hinted MacPeaver, with the secret conviction that he would be very late indeed. You needn't sit up and wait for me unless you like. And with this evidence of his kindly forethought, he gleefully prepared to go out. I canna needna, responded Mrs MacPeaver in tart appreciation, and it's no that I like to sit up, but you can rest assured I will. The sooner you're back, however, the better I'll be pleased. MacPeaver was perturbed rather than rested by this assurance. He knew that, along with bright eyes watching for his return, a sharp tongue might also figure on Mrs MacPeaver's effective list of charms. The occasion was one on which he scarcely expected her to smile approval, for he was going to a lodge meeting to be initiated as a Freemason, and towards Masonry, with its mysteries, its secret rites, and its exclusiveness, of the fair sex in particular, Mrs MacPeaver, like many other ladies, was vaguely hostile. At that precise moment, however, MacPeaver, as a tactician of great experience, did not desire to argue the subject. All he wanted just then was to get out in comparative peace. So he meekly folded his umbrella and silently stole away in the well-known Arabic fashion. Mrs MacPeaver should have been satisfied with this hollow victory, especially as MacPeaver came home so unquestionably early that it looked as if he had done his best to please her. But no. She had all along meant to have his new hobby trotted out and spanked hard, and she chose to do so that very night. She could not know that the strategic MacPeaver was now fully prepared for her. So, you've gotten your mummery by for the night, have you? She twitted. What mummery are you referring to, Jean? demanded MacPeaver rebukingly. Who many different kinds of mummery had you like? sneered Jean. Woman, remarked MacPeaver ponderously, if you're alluding to the Masonic ritual, let me tell you that it's no a subject for jesting about. Yon solemnising rites, he murmured in retrospective awe, were nae mummery. I'll wager that when you thought you were at the most solemnising bits, they were laughing themselves silliest. And I suppose you would hate to wallow through other booby traps as if you liked them. 
I passed through the supreme test imposed on me with every credit, admitted MacPeever grandly. That would be tallying up the fees in advance, nae doot, jeered Mrs MacPeever. The wouldna gi muckle credit for them, I'm thinking. Although this was a shaft sped at venture, it went home, for her surmise happened to be strictly correct. The greater the truth, the greater the libel, and MacPeever rose to the occasion with a dignity that was magnificent. Jane Rattray, he addressed her freezingly. Ah, your feminine satire wouldn't mak me reveal the grim secrets of this past evening, nor yet your crafty female blandishments. Jean had set a most appetising plate of stew under his very nose. For one thing, Freemasons are sworn to keep their proceedings hidden, and for another... Here MacPeever lowered his voice darkly. You would bitterly regret hearing them. Now, nothing could be more tantalising than to be deprived of a secret gnawing grief of this character, and Mrs MacPeever was of a fairly inquisitive disposition. I'm no wantin' to ken on ye your secrets, she snapped, with obvious feigned indifference. But for the life of me, I canna see who I would bitterly regret hearing a lot of Haverin balderdash. There are some things, of course, reflected MacPeever relentingly, that I've no been exactly sworn to keep secret. They're kind of left to me in discretion, like. And if you would promise no to tell anybody, do you think I would? queried Jean indignantly. I think any woman would, was the callous reply, unless she promised secrecy. And maybe whether or no. However, as a sort of reliability test, I'll trust you with a bit trial secret or twa. Mind, you're no to interrupt me. And if the recital cause you any mental pain, gang on with your recital. I'm sure I'll no brack my hair or a package of mummery. Arich then, I'll gi you some. And with an impressive air, which Mrs. MacPeever struggled against in vain, he began. When the Tyler. What in a Tyler? There you go, interrupting me the instant I opened my lips to speak. It's easy seen women would never dare to be Masons. Tyler in Masonic parlance, means doorkeeper. <laughs> what might be their code word for a retired grocer like yourself, for instance? If you ask any mere foolish questions, MacPeever informed her, I'll stop. When the tiler ushered me into a pitch-dark room, with my een bandaged, whatever was the use of a bandage if it was pitch-dark? I was gagged, so I didna ask, and if you've got such a thing as a gag about you, I wish you would wear it till I've tell you the story. My arms had been bound to my sides. That's what the day were lunatics. Are you sure you were at the right place? MacPeever groaned in despair. 
If you must speak, good wife, you must try to think in proportion aforehand. I was telling you, my ankles and knees had likewise been rigidly tied together. I thought you said you were ushered in. Who did you walk? I was ushered in on a stretcher, then duly stood on end. What end? What end did you think? Could I stand on my head? And then a hollow voice bade me beware. No to take a single step forward as I valued my life. A guy needless precaution that, and you trussed up like a deed hen. They were surely better to tell me afore they untied me than after. For when they'd cut my bonds and bandages, I was left standing on the edge of a yawning chasm of a cellar. Who did you ken if the place was pitch dark? I didn't ken until the licht was turned on, and then the sicht that met my gaze would he tested the strongest nerve. Everybody but myself was shrouded, fi top to tay and black cloaks, faces and ah, barren slits to see through. Oh, what a comical lot they would look! Did you no laugh? No, nor you wouldn't have laughed either, if you'd been commanded as I was to descend that unfathomable abyss by means of a dangling rope ladder. Twelve rungs! Nay mere and nay less. Did you do it? Without a word. <laughs> That's mere than you ever did for me when I've asked you to bring up a scuttleful of coal for the cellar. Now, Jean, this was no commonplace piece of domestic drudgery. This was a different kind of adventure altogether. Below, I could hear a clammy drip. Drip, drip, into a mysterious pool. I should imagine that to be a burst water pipe. And an ominous tick, ticking, like what you've read about hearing in the infernal machine. That would be the gas meter. And as I disappeared from mortal view, a trapdoor closed upon my head. And all was black. There I was, left swinging in mid-air. Were you quite clear of the cellar pavement? Over a bottomless pool. I hope you did the tramp on it and get damp feet. And when I was drawn out, you would be like a chimney sweep. Cool, calm and collected, the applause was deafening. Having passed through the grand nerve test, I was formally proposed as a fully-fledged mason. But it was just here that the real trouble began. The question was asked, can Colin McPeever keep a secret? And somebody replied, seemingly in the direct negative, by stating that Colin McPeever's a married man, at which... A moan of sympathy welled up for ah, that vast assemblage. If there was any real sympathy welling up, it would be for your wife. I rather thought it was for me, 
but you can judge for what followed. The question was then put, can Colin McPeever's wife keep on a secret that she worms out him? And the answer came for the back. No, the speaker's back, but the back of the hall, you understand. Get on me, your havers! What was the answer? broke in Mrs McPeever impatiently. The full-voiced answer rang out. No! At which there was an obvious sensation. I should say there ought to be. The wretch, did you not chalk the life out him for his slanderous utterance? No, I was a bit choked myself with cobwebs obtained in the cellar. And as a matter of fact, I rather agreed with him. Of course, if this recital's giving you pain, I'll stop. You'd better know, my certes, I'll sift this out. That's just what you're no today. Ye promised to keep quiet, no matter what you heard. And besides, the whole affair's been sifted out for you. Evidence was then led, and the man deponed took oath and said that nineteen years ago, to gang nae further back, Colin McPeever was a tenant to his, that on sundry vexatious pretexts, the said Colin McPeever wheedled him into knocking a pound off the rent on the explicit understanding that it was to be kept quiet for the neighbours in the land. That the aforesaid Colin McPeever, instead of putting the siller in his pouch like a sensible man and saying nothing about it, went straight home, told his wife of the triumph, and handed over the fruits of his rapacity. That having occasion to visit his property that same afternoon, the deponent was fair overwhelmed by a deluge of unscrupulous women clamouring like the daughters of the horse leech for a pound off their rent the same as Mrs McPeever had been boasting she'd got. And that there was one unprincipled fixin' wantin' thirty shillings. For that day, averred the deponent, owing to Mrs McPeever's incautious words, his life was a burden to him, and he only lost the burden and very near his life when the house fell in, kind of spontaneous-like two or three years later. Colin! broke in Mrs McPeever in a subdued voice. You'll surely admit that was the first and last serious mistake of the kind I ever made. And that was nineteen years ago. Well then, Jean, seeing you tack me that way, I'll admit it's the only mistake of any kind you ever made, and that it was myself to blame for no cautioning you. And to relieve your mind on the subject... I may mention that my Masonic experiences are drawn solely for imagination. They were our fool up to initiate me this time, or do anything but tack my fees for me in advance, as you suggested. Did you know that The Odd Fellows has been helping its members forge lasting friendships and offering them help in times of need for over 200 years? And the good news is that it's still going strong today, with a network of 309,000 members and 121 branches all over the UK. If you find that you need a little support or advice during a difficult time, Odd Fellows can help. 
And if you'd like to meet like-minded people and get together for a chat, Oddfellas can help with that too. They know that people can achieve so much more by coming together than they ever could alone. Be part of a friendlier society. Give the Oddfellas a call today on 0800 028 1810 for a free information pack or visit oddfellows.co.uk to find your nearest branch. They'd love to see you. Terms and conditions apply to all member benefits and services. Now, let me top up my tea, grab some of my friends, and we'll have that wee chat about the story you've just heard. And joining me to discuss that story is uh, our able narrator, production editor Judy, friend poetry editor Abby, and Barry Sullivan, who is assistant archivist at DC Thompson. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. So... The Secrets of Freemasonry, a subject which has um, captivated me for precisely no years of my life um, (laughs) until I read this story. What do we think? Oh, I loved it. Especially since my dad was a Mason. Ah, Did he know the secret handshake? Oh, I would imagine that he did. I think his and his father before him was a Mason. So uh, I think they were, I don't know how involved my dad was particularly. I don't think he really ever went to meetings or anything, but... uh, he was certainly a member, so he will have gone through the initiation, however that looks. Not that we'll ever know, being women. <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, I don't think I'll ever know either. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to know. <laughs> I know. It'd be interesting to know what they did, though. Well, you can find out online. I mean, I know, I'm sure you can. Oh, you can. I, I, I looked. <laughs> there are some very, very in-depth descriptions. Um I'm not really sure they follow the pattern that Colin McPeever lays out. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, he didn't know either at that point, did no, he? No, he didn't. He did, a, did a good job, though, didn't he? Yeah. I was th- I was thinking that Mrs McPeever was buying it right up until near the end. I think there. she was, though. Yeah, I think she oh, was oh. as well. I, I, th- I wasn't sure. I thought, um, I thought she'd sort of really got to the heart of it by talking about the fees and I, I wasn't sure I wasn't sure if she kind of if she was just leading him on or not because there's a, a section anyway so she has a dig at him and said well you, you know whatever else happens I'll taking your money and I said I went you know that hit home yeah and I wondered it was mm-hmm. a, a shaft sped at a venture and I went home for her surmise mm-hmm. happened to be strictly correct and I wasn't sure whether or not uh, she was aware of that or not because, I mean, obviously she'll, she'll be able to read her husband like a book. <laughs> Do you think she was just sort of leading him on into telling a ridiculous story? I thought she was leading him on. Yeah, but I think, I, I agree. I think, she, I think she was believing it up to that point. Mm-hmm. I think she was just having a dig because she didn't know what had gone on and because of, you know, how women are excluded. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's obviously a, a preoccupation um, even then. That you know that the women were excluded, um, and weirdly enough, it turns out that the first female lodge apparently came about a couple of years after this. Is that so? Because I know they have like the Eastern Star, which is like the the sort of female branch of it, if you like. Oh, I didn't even know of that. No, that's interesting. Oh yeah, no, I've not heard of that. My auntie was very big in the Eastern Star, right, all her life. Because it sounds like a criminal organisation. <laughs> probably yeah. was knowing her. <laughs> But yes, she because my father and my grandfather were so involved, I think this was her way of being involved as well. So again, this is another McDonald's story uh, in which uh, you've got this 
this banter between the two and it is again it's a bit of a tennis match yeah but she she's she's on the defensive i think you're right yeah. she's on the defensive because she just keeps mm-hmm. interjecting just to undercut him which is to, to great comic effect <laughs> we said. there's no nastiness about it um and i just I, I quite like the fact that all the way through these stories he seems still so keen to impress her mm-hmm. or her opinion obviously matters to him so the, if, if it was nasty if it was if there was no love in this it would be a very different very different sort of story yes but uh, i think I think it's done again lovingly. Again, yeah, it's it's point scoring again, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, very much. But so. this is more like a tennis match than a football <laughs> match. This one, this one goes back and forward quite a lot. Yeah, mm. and she's just whacking it back, and you know you could just see it going over the net, and him not being able to reach it. <laughs> <laughs> what I quite liked about this as well is another another aspect of McDonald using the, the sort of the, the format to to reflect the the. the the theme. So he's. This is just mummery, as far as Colin McPeel yeah. is concerned. This is just. This is ridiculous and extravagant. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just. It's a step almost too far in some respects. It seems crazy to continue this this line, but obviously, at the end, we see why he was actually aiming <laughs> for this, um, which is quite uh, quite funny in itself. Yeah, it, was, it was. It was very well done. And again, there's absolutely nothing but dialogue. You know, it's just back forward, back forward. There's very little in between. Speaking about sort of point scoring, I was thinking there, just having a, a look at the towards the end of the story, um, it's going back and forward, back and forward. And as you say, Colin's losing all the points. Um, <laughs> and then he, get, he gets one point in and he's talking about a, a time where they'd got money off their rent. Yeah. And um, she, she gave the game shut. away. Yeah. And then she, she breaks in and she says... Um, You'll surely admit that was the first and last serious mistake of the kind I ever made, and and it seems like he's won that point, and then immediately he he basically says concedes. Yeah, never mind about that. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. he basically gives it up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which I thought was really sweet, actually. Yeah, I really liked that. Um, it really showed like the other side to the relationship that is sort of under the surface, but it doesn't seem like it's there, but it is there. If you get what I mean. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a bit like he, he worried there that he'd gone too far. Mm-hmm. I, I think he, he worried, uh, it's like he worried there that maybe that was too much. And then he kind of brings it back again. Yeah. Well, he's about to be made a fool of, isn't he? Because he has <laughs> just given them their money despite <laughs> yeah. not getting, a, getting in, in the door, really. Uh, <laughs> so. But then he admits that to her, which he didn't have to do. Oh, are we, we going to call this a draw? <laughs> yeah, you know, they were, they were too full up to initiate me this time and do anything but take my fees, as you suggested. So, you know, he didn't have to tell her that. He could have just said, if I go back next week. But I think she would have found out. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. Just on the the, the, the membership and that you're saying it was too full, I kind of picked up in this, uh, as is my one, I went obviously through the British newspaper archive just to get a sense of how Freemasonry was reported on and perceived at that time. And, and I found in a, an article from around about that time, 1903, this is in the Perthshire Advertiser, and um, it reports that in that year there were 12,000 new Scottish members. And I, just, I was kind of blown away oh. with this. I, was, I, I had no idea. I thought it was very exclusive. This is maybe my own perception. I always thought it was a bit more exclusive and smaller membership and you know, very, very limited. So uh, suddenly you think, oh, maybe McDonald is actually 
he's done some research on this. Maybe he he knows a bit about it. Yeah, there was there was every chance he was maybe one himself. But that's very true, actually. But I just I was staggered. Twelve thousand. That's that's a fair chunk of the population. I would I would argue. Yeah, that's really surprising. I also thought that it was a very exclusive, almost like the top one percent kind of deal. <laughs> I didn't realise it was so many people. What surprised me as well was just how widely um, aspects of Freemasonry were reported. So I'll jump in and give you a couple of reports about bazaars which were held um, in around this time. Uh-huh. Um, Not bazaars, but bazaars. <laughs> bazaars, yes. So fundraisers. Um, so <laughs> I was going to say they were for charitable works. I think were, the money was going towards the lodges, I, I, as far as I can understand. But I um, believe they did charitable work. They did. Yeah, I think. Yes. Um, I think that was that was their. their their main main focus, but uh, these mm-hmm. particular ones, I think, were to to raise money to to sort of upgrade their lodges. Mm. And um, one of one of these reports covers this bazaar in in Perth, I think it was. And one of the members was giving a speech, and uh, I'll, do, I'll read I'll read a little bit from this. It had struck him as rather remarkable that ladies who were not allowed to participate in the secrets of masonry should expend so much of their time, labour, and money in order to promote the success of such a bazaar as that. Two explanations had suggested themselves to his mind. They knew that ladies were not able enough to keep secrets, <laughs> laughter, <laughs> and perhaps being aware of the fact they were generous enough to refrain from asking to participate in it. Applause. The other explanation, and probably a more correct one, was that the ladies did not believe that there were any secrets to keep. Laughter. So... That's, I was going to ask you to compare and contrast this with another one from a little while later. In fact, this is from December 1906. This is from the Shetland Times. And again, it's at a bazaar, and it's a speech, and the, the speaker says, The fact that the ladies have taken up the cause in so hearty a manner is, I think, the best proof of the esteem in which masonry is held by this community. It is true, I had misgivings at first, as ladies are not admitted to our order, and are not allowed to share his secrets. But I have a suspicion that some of the wives of Freemasons present know more than it would be safe for them to admit. <laughs> Isn't that kind of quite <laughs> ominous sounding? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it was meant to be humorous, but as it, as it read on the, on the page, that sounded quite like a veiled threat. There's something in the story about that as well. Yes. You know? he, he says something along the lines of... Um, you, oh, I, I can't think of the line now, but it's it's something along the lines of you'd be loath to know the secrets of the the masons, as if it would be a yeah. burden in some ways. I think that's kind of where he was going mm-hmm. with that, wasn't he? So it was obviously that was the public perception, and Macdonald has played on this, yeah, very clearly, and you know, albeit in a far funnier way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still I'm looking for this uh, these lines, but I should also say that when you were saying applause and laughter, I thought you were directing us. I was really disappointed, Ian. Yeah, where, where was the? Uh, no, these these sorry these were in parentheses. <laughs> we're, we're not a very good audience for you, Barry. Sorry about that. I know, I know. Um, the other thing I really liked as well was this little bit at the end um, where. Um, He's talking about this this poor hard done by landlord who has had all these women chasing them for for money off the rent. And uh, what does it say? Afraid that day, a verb. No, I won't even attempt it. Um, basically, what he's saying is he, he lost his, lost the burden and very near his life when his house fell in. 
And I thought, oh, that's brilliant, isn't it? He's gone from Freemasonry to free-falling masonry in one <laughs> sentence. And I thought, that was, I'm going to give him credit for that. I think that's deliberate. <laughs> I don't think that would have occurred to me, I have to say. No. <laughs> I think we've we've spoken before, um, before for us, but perhaps after for those listening to the podcast, uh, once we, we finally get round to broadcasting our pilot we spoke about AP McDonald's um, flair for language and how kind of every sentence is tooled in a way that that shows that he spent a lot of time on it and there was a lot of work in it. So that that was with reference specifically to kind of uh, gags that were set into the sentences mm-hmm. that you might not get the first time you go over it. So that's I, I hadn't picked up on that one myself, but. Uh, it seems to me that that might very well have been deliberate. Yeah, there's every chance that could have been the case, given how how much craft goes into it, really. Yeah, it seems like he takes a very long time to choose the, the words. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like every word counts and there's nothing kind of, there's, there's no like filler words. It's just all, it all relates back to the story. It also has a nice rhythm as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, the story has a nice rhythm, and I kind of I really didn't get that until I heard Judy reading it at a pace different to the one that was in my head. And it's, it just it flows and it bounces back and forth. It's, it's it is dialogue. It's brilliant. Yeah, the yeah. rhythm is very important and it's very natural. Yeah, because mm-hmm. sometimes you know, obviously, what I do is when we get the stories in, you kind of go through them and. I like to try and make sure the dialogue is as natural as possible. And sometimes, you know, even if it's a phenomenal story, which it it generally is, sometimes the dialogue can be a bit stilted and they don't speak like your ear would naturally hear. It's a lot of, I I will be doing this instead of I'll be doing, Mm -hmm. you know, things like that. So when you get absolute natural rhythmical dialogue like that, it really stands out. Judy, can I ask if if this was put in front of you now? In fact, actually, both of you, mm-hmm. if if these stories were put in front of you now, I mean, what would your reaction be? What would you suggest in terms of changing, uh, if anything at all? I don't think. I mean, I don't think anything needs changed. The the only reason we probably wouldn't print them today is because of the very strong Scottish dialect. This kind of dialect was spoken far more widely in Scotland. Mm back at that time than it is now because even the younger even the younger people in the office the children that I teach in my spare time they don't have a clue about some of the sort of what I consider just standard sort of kind of Scottish words I thought you were going to wait to refer to the younger people in the office as the children <laughs> <laughs> no I'm not that old am I no actually I probably am but um yeah, I think I think that would be the only the only uh, sort of barricade we would have against printing it nowadays because it's really funny. It would just I just think mm-hmm. it would pass the humor would pass a lot of people by because they wouldn't understand what was being said. But I certainly wouldn't find anything to change. I have to confess that I would be one of those people that was um yeah, I had to actually read the story along with your audio Mm -hmm. so that I could actually understand some things. I think a lot of even the Scottish people there would be a lot Mm -hmm. of words that would kind of pass them by a bit. 
I do like the idea of you sitting there trying to translate it. <laughs> sitting in Google Translate typing it all in. I know. It did feel a bit like reading um, Shakespeare or something like that. Yeah. Times. <laughs> but yeah, I wouldn't change anything else about the story. I think it's a really strong, really strong story. and It's just so tight. Yeah, and the dialogue is just so, like you said, it's just so natural and mm. it's so relatable. You can see this playing out anywhere, really. You, it's yeah, definitely. yeah. I mean, I just loved you know when at the start where he starts to tell the story and she's saying, "How did you walk? And what end did the stand you up on? And how did you know that if you had?" To... <laughs> I mean, that's just it's so relatable, isn't it? Well, yeah. she gives in the third degree, and that is a term that stemmed from masonry, I believe. Is that so? Oh, really? I believe so. Yeah, I think the part of the ceremony is them being questioned on their their own morals and their own standing. It's almost breaking the fourth wall with all of the references yeah. <laughs> and the wordplay. I, I mean, I think it does a little bit, but in a very measured way, not as so much as it drag you out of the story. I think some mm-hmm. people, mm-hmm. you know, there's some filmmakers and writers and so on who would push that to the nth degree, but uh, it seems fairly measured with McDonald's. Definitely. It is indeed, and uh, we're actually going to hear that in some future episodes uh, when we feature some more of Mr. McDonald's stories, so everyone listening should keep an ear out for those coming soon. Well, that's us for this episode, so my thanks to Abby and Barry for joining us, and to Judy as well for her lovely reading, and thanks to you at home. And until this wee group of friends gets together again for another story, from the friend to you, cheerio. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Reading Between the Lines. Subscribe in your podcast app today so you don't miss our next story, and check our previous episodes for more from the friend archives. We'd be delighted if you were to recommend this podcast to your friends. If you don't already get The People's Friend, because you listen to Reading Between the Lines, you can now get your first 13 issues for just £8, and that special offer is available until the 31st of May 2021. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And for more from The People's Friend, visit thepeoplesfriend.co.uk or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Haste you back. There's a dainty little journal that is read both far and near. It has had a host of rivals, still it stands without a peer. It is bright and entertaining from the first page to the end, and is known to its admirers as the dear old people's friend. A charming little journal is the friend. Of good things it is such a happy blend. That to read it at your leisure is a pleasure without measure. The friend to friends in trouble recommend. They won't be happy till they get the friend. <laughs>